Damn, son, where'd you find this? Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 43 of the Fly Route Podcast. I am your host, Anthony, a.k.a. Tony Playboy, a.k.a. Little Lamar's Urban Achievers, a.k.a. Brick Simmons. And we have an exciting show for you all today. We are going to get into all the nitty-gritty details of the recent Richard Sherman arrest. We are going to get into the fly route for Ben Simmons, not the 76ers, Ben Simmons. We are going to get into the top 10 wide receiving courts in the NFL. And last but not least, we are going to give a big, big, big baller's bouquet to Lamar Jackson for his third annual fun day. Welcome to the tee off. Oh, 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 spill that tea, sis. This is how I like to start the show off. I like to spill some tea on our favorite athletes and the crazy situations they get themselves into. Today is a crazy, crazy, crazy situation that is pretty, like, recent breaking. We're going to talk about Richard Sherman. If you all aren't familiar with Richard Sherman, Richard Sherman is a perennial Pro Bowl cornerback for last the San Francisco 49ers, but claim to fame in the Legion of Boom with the Seattle Seahawks where he won a Super Bowl ring. And what is going on with Richard Sherman? You might have heard the headline, Richard Sherman denied bail for a domestic violence situation. And that headline is actually extremely misleading because it leads you all to think, oh, is Richard Sherman abusing his wife, his kids, etc.? But that is actually none of the case. And as the details continue to pour out on this story, the first thing that you notice is it was extremely overblown by the media. People jumped to way too many conclusions to really demonize right off this man and think of the worst possible things that he could have done instead of allowing things to play out. But now we have way, way more details. I'm recording on Thursday night instead of usually Wednesday night when we do, so I could give you all an accurate account of what happened. So basically, a lot of the facts that we have from this situation is from a 911 call made by his wife, Ashley Moss. And that was leaked. ESPN got a hold of it. ABC News got a hold of it. And what it's clear here is that Richard Sherman is quite intoxicated from her accounts. He says that he mixed the light and the dock liquor. And we know nothing good happens when you mix in the light in the dark. She said he had a bottle of vodka and a bottle of Hennessy. And the most shocking and devastating part of this call is that Richard Sherman is claiming that he is going to kill himself, saying that he is going to hang himself. And also, according to his wife, 
sending that information to other people through text message and prayers up mental health is a very serious issue and we hope that Richard Sherman is okay gets the help that he needs and does not harm himself and that is first and foremost what needs to be said she also says that he is drunk fighting what she calls her uncle I'm not sure if that's the uncle of their kids and it's her brother or if it's actually just her uncle that Richard gets into a scuffle with, but no one is injured. Neither the uncle nor Richard are injured in this, but Richard is being quite belligerent. During the phone call, she says that he is trying to leave the home and drive away in their car. Obviously, bad idea, drunk driving, you should not do it. But he escapes, even though she claims to have turned off the the gate, the power to the gate, but he gets out. He then gets into a crash in a construction zone, but not with another car, just with like inanimate objects. Mind you be seeing the pictures of said crash also massively overblown. He basically clipped a median with his back tire and Fucked it up a bit. Like, I'm sure most of you have probably been in worse accidents. Now, that is not an excuse for driving under the influence. That's unacceptable. And that's something that we've taken up. I personally have taken a very strong stance against. But it is very important to keep the events that occurred in perspective in accordance to maybe what you might have heard here and there from other places. Now, this leads us to how does Richard Sherman get arrested? Apparently, he goes to his in-laws' homes and is trying to break into their home. Now, this is where the domestic violence designation comes in, just because it is interfamilial violence Richard Sherman hurt zero people attacked zero people at this residence but he was actively according to Raymond Moss who is his wife's father trying to break down the door with his shoulder like ramming into it over and over again Raymond says that he actually opens the door crack to pepper spray Richard Sherman and that Richard is yelling come through Ray he's trying to get Ray to come out the house it seems like something is going on between Ray and Richard that is a point of conflict here but that's also their business that is where the domestic violence designation comes through Richard Sherman injured zero people hurt nobody and basically all the damage that he did was to property not to any individuals. So it is technically domestic violence by the way the law categorizes intrafamilial conflicts. It is not domestic violence in the traditional sense of the word and what people think, but that is not something that people want to tell you or highlight when they're trying to get the clicks. He did not enter the home, did not strike any people in the home Period. And that's just not like people in Richard Sherman's camp saying that is from the official police report. Now, this ends up happening 
and the police come through. They try to subdue Richard Sherman. And to be fair, it is announced prior on the 911 call that his wife made that if the police try to subdue him, Richard is going to fight back. She begs them not to shoot Richard and to understand that he is intoxicated but unarmed. The police show up. Richard, predictably, based off what his wife said, does try to get into a physical altercation with the police. They take him down using a canine, right? So the canine unit takes him down. A dog takes him down. Richard is the only person injured here, and it's only a couple of scratches. They take him to the hospital, and they get him checked out before taking him to jail. The reason why he was denied bail, which is what allowed people to make these extra presumptions, is because in Washington state, all domestic violence situations required him to be seen by a judge before being able to get bail. So what ends up happening is today on Thursday, Richard sees a judge. He gets bail for ten thousand dollars gets zero felony charges. This is what I have to say. So all the people making the assumptions that Richard Sherman's career is over, blah, 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 zero felony charges. He gets one count of criminal trespassing, which is a misdemeanor, a count of malicious mischief, a DUI count, and a resisting arrest count. That is it. And considering someone of Richard Sherman's means, I doubt that these charges will go very far or it'll have any type of jail time, etc., attached to it. But the one thing I do have to say here is, my God, I'm not going to play the 911 call because I feel like that was a little extra on the part of whoever leaked it out. But the 911 dispatcher in this situation talking to Richard Sherman's wife can be understood as nothing less than inhumane, incompassionate, rude, unprofessional, like it is quite literally out of this story, the worst part of it to me. Like, how is that their job? I highly, highly recommend that you go listen to this. If you're listening on YouTube, the link to the call, if you want to listen to it, will be in the description on our YouTube channel. We'll try to also put it in the Spotify description. So wherever you're listening to, you can have access to it. But it's not something that I'm going to play here. But regardless, that was your tee off. Y'all is Tony Playboy. All right, all right, all right. Let's get into the fly route for today. We got to talk about Ben Simmons. And where do you want to see Ben Simmons go? What is the fly route for Ben Simmons? And the first thing I want to say is we talked about this on episode 42. So if you ain't heard it, go back and listen. We had a great guest, Toya G from the Chop Up Pod. And what you got to understand is Ben Simmons' value is probably at an all-time low now. But I personally believe that his value will increase over time as we start to get over what was an amazing playoff collapse and start to understand really 
who is Ben Simmons? Ben Simmons is a all-star, all-NBA defender. That is a fact. He is an all-star distributor and playmaker. He can score, but has recently kind of lost that touch in the playoffs. He can get to the basket. He can score in the paint, but he's not going to shoot. I think Kendrick Perkins may have been the person to coin this first. He is all NBA. He is who he is, right? So considering who Ben Simmons is, and I think a lot of people want to create trade scenarios where this team will rehabilitate Ben and Ben will be a completely different player and start shooting the three or even shooting the mid-range shot. I'm not saying that's impossible. I'm saying based off what we've seen so far, it is unlikely. So given Ben Simmons' current skill set, which is an all-star caliber skill set, where do you think Ben Simmons should go that will best maximize Ben Simmons? A lot of people want to give you this conversation from the idea of, what is best for the Sixers when they want something back? That is an interesting conversation, not the one I want to have. Where does Ben Simmons go that maximizes the potential of Ben Simmons? That's really the conversation that I think is the most interesting to have here. So I have three options for you. And the first is going to be probably the most popular, talked about the most, it is Ben Simmons going to the Golden State Warriors. I think if you're thinking about this trade, you have to think that Ben Simmons is going to replace Draymond Green, not augment Draymond Green. Because the role that you envision for Ben Simmons would really just be Draymond Green's role. All-star defender, but unlike Draymond, I think... Ben is a more versatile defender or just the breadth of players he can cover. He can really cover one through four effectively. And I think Draymond is more of a three through five guy. So it's it's interesting to think about that piece where that can actually even take some of the defensive pressure off Clay Thompson coming back from a second straight injury that cost him a season, but also his playmaking ability. We see Draymond play point forward a ton, setting the screens for people like Steph Curry. And you think, wow, Ben Simmons in that role, having shooters around him like Clay and Steph, finding them open in transition in the half court, being able to run plays to get someone like Steph open. Sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. He can have the paint for the most part. When they run a small ball lineup, could you imagine Ben filling in in that Draymond 5 role and what that looks like when Ben Simmons could have the paint entirely to himself on a team with a lot of shooters and some of the best shooters in NBA history? That sounds insane. Insane in a way that it can maximize Ben Simmons' potential and the current skill set that he brings to a team. Now, I don't know what this trade could even look like if they're not sending Draymond back, both in the realms of like matching salary, but also like, yikes, what is that Golden State 
Warriors team look like. The spacing becomes rough with both him and Draymond on the court. Adding a big to that, if they ever need to play big, sounds honestly difficult to imagine. But after that, Steph being able to extend defenses with his massive range, spread the court out, create driving lanes and space in the paint for Ben Simmons. Honestly, it sounds like a match made in heaven. It sounds like a way that you extend this Golden State Warriors dynasty with a young powerhouse style of player. So then that brings me to my number two. And the number two is kind of interesting for me because I feel like this doesn't have as great of a fit as the Golden State Warriors would. But interestingly enough, it's the Minnesota Timberwolves. And this is an interesting trade to me because the biggest issue for Ben Simmons on the 76ers roster isn't just that he won't shoot and he's having trouble being aggressive. It's that him and Joel Embiid want to occupy the same spaces on the court to be their most effective or efficient selves right now. So that made me think, if you're trading Ben Simmons, right, where can you trade him where his conflict with the other big, the five men on that roster, isn't as glaring as it is over in Philadelphia right now. So that has me with the Minnesota Timberwolves. I feel like he would fit better next to Cat than he would Embiid. Cat is definitely more comfortable playing from the outside in as a big who can stretch the floor. We all know Embiid will shoot the threes, but Cat is actually significantly more proficient out there, and that can open up some of these lanes for Ben. Now, that in combination with Ant-Man, who I think is becoming a sneaky, better shooter than he was at the beginning of his rookie season, and I expect for him to take that jump going into year two. Malik Beasley, who has come on as kind of being a strong shooter and a scorer in his own right, and then Ben kind of running the offense. Now, D'Lo would also be great to space this team. And if you haven't heard this from me, I think D'Lo's best position is actually a two, not a one. But I imagine to get this trade to work, they have to send D'Lo back over to the 76ers. And that might actually be something that they'll take and like. Look, it's not the same level of defensive prowess, clearly, but he's a scorer at the point guard position for them and can make a huge difference in the construction of this team in Philadelphia. But that gives Ben the ability to take the lead point guard duties, run the offense, control the pace of the game for this team. And it's one that I liked a lot. Now, my last one is my most interesting one for me. And I think it's also the one that is, for the most part, kind of slept on and people haven't thought about this a lot. But the Toronto Raptors, and maybe I'm crazy. Let me know in the comments, wherever you're listening, if I'm crazy, at me on Twitter. But the Toronto Raptors, for me, I think is the prime position for Ben Simmons and it's most likely centered around a swap with the Kyle Lowry contract. Now, 
Cal Lowry is one year left, I'm pretty sure, and one for one, Cal Lowry, Ben Simmons would actually work. However, of course, the Raptors are going to have to toss in some picks, maybe another player, add in, a, add in something to kind of make things work for Philly. But we heard the Cal Lowry for Ben Simmons, Cal Lowry to Philly rumors pervasively this season. And I think this is probably a place where you go back to the well. Now, this allows Ben Simmons to also, a theme here, be surrounded by shooters. Fred Van Fleet, Gary Trent Jr., Rodney Hood, they have real shooters on this roster. And Ben being able to set those people up, create offense for others, is kind of his prime skill. Also, it allows them to play smaller lineups. They really only have one true center that is getting paid and minutes on that team. That's Aaron Baines. And I honestly believe that they would be willing to sacrifice Baines minutes coming off the bench significantly and really playing a small ball lineup with Ben and Pascal Siakam playing the front court where they can push the pace keep the paint open for someone like Ben Simmons, operate in a way that allows them to space the floor for him to be his most effective self in the half court when you're not in transition. Fred Van Flee can run half court sets and half court offense, be a closer for this team. If you're concerned about Ben Simmons in the clutch, shooting the free throws, having the ball in his hand, etc. Also, his defensive prowess brings something to this Raptors team that can bring them back to what we understood them several seasons ago prior to this fall off of this season. He becomes the best playmaker on that team. And I think he's in a city that will embrace him, allow him to grow and take some of the pressure off of him that he's currently feeling in Philly. Those are my top three options right now. I'm really, really feeling the Toronto Raptors as maybe the best fit outside of Golden State, but that's more because, well, Steph and Clay are Steph and Clay. Let's not play, boy. Yo, we're about to get into the top 10 wide receiving corps in the NFL this season. The rosters are relatively set in stone now, It, especially when we're talking about the top talent. So I feel like this is a good time to kind of dig deep on this. And the most surprising part about this whole thing for me, because I went pretty deep to say the least, on all of these teams is that early on, looking at this all, I made a ranking just kind of based off how I understood these teams. And I'm going to give you all these rankings first because they ended up being nothing, nothing at all like my end rankings when I dug deep into all of the rosters, graded the ride receivers, graded the tight ends, etc., and kind of felt about the cumulative total. 
So before my number one was the Tampa Bay Bucks, two was the Chiefs, three, the Titans, four, the Bills, five, the Seahawks, six, the Dallas Cowboys, seven, the Minnesota Vikings, eight, the Miami Dolphins, nine, the Washington football team, and 10, the Denver Broncos. Now, a lot of these teams actually fell out of the top 10. And I ended up thinking, wow, your top two guys will probably put you on this list or take you off this list completely. And then when you start getting to a third, fourth receiver on your team that can do something like put up a thousand yard season, be a constant mismatch, you start elevating yourself into the top five. So my number 10 on my straight list is the Cincinnati Bengals. And I was surprised to see them on this list. And I think that's because we're underrating some of their wide receiver talent. The first is Tyler Boyd, mad underrated. He has 2,000 yard seasons. He dipped a little bit last season though, but you got to think that was because they did not have Joe Burrow at the end of that season. He's going to continue to dominate in the slot. He had the third highest receiving yards in the slot last season. The next is T. Higgins. T. Higgins was a rookie last year, came in, had an over almost, almost 900 yard season. Again, with the backup quarterback half of the season. So that's something to think about. Those two guys, strong, strong receivers. But then we have to add Jamar Chase. And I know he has not played a snap in the NFL yet. But it is hard to underrate his connection with Joe Burrow. They played together at LSU. He shined even harder than Justin Jefferson that year that they were together. And I honestly think he's going to come into the league and be dominant. Just not from his skill standpoint, his size standpoint, but also just from the rapport that he has with his quarterback. I think they have a nice three-headed monster where none of these guys are top receivers in the league, but all of them are really, really good, which creates a balanced three-headed attack and puts them at my number 10 spot. Number nine, number nine, number nine. I'm always high on this team, but the Washington football team, as usual, this team is highly underrated and its receiving core is no different. They also have a three-headed monster. Now, the difference is two of these guys are significantly more proven in the league than my number nine team, the Cincinnati Bengals. The first is Terry McLaurin. This dude is a baller. Through all the quarterback shuffles and underwhelming quarterback play of the Washington football team as of late, he has still been able to produce. He had 87 catches last season, over 1,100 yards, and four touchdowns. This dude is a clear number one receiver who can get it anywhere on the field. 
second receiver, a big addition for them. And something that was uniquely interesting to me was the addition of Curtis Samuels. Curtis Samuels had 77 catches for 851 yards last year. And that was with 2,000 yard receivers ahead of him on the Carolina Panthers wide receivering depth chart. That's crazy, which means now sliding into a clear number two role, I expect him to take another jump forward and post an even better season than he did last year. And the third is at the tight end spot for me. And Logan Thomas, I think, is an underrated tight end. For all of my fantasy people, once those first couple of tight ends are off the board, you know, the Kelsey, Waller, Kittle, Logan Thomas is someone that you should look out for. 72 receptions last year for 670 yards and six touchdowns. This man is underrated because that last season where he posted that was really his first season getting a lot of play, touches, targets, etc. He over four times his production from the previous season in both yards and catches. This is a huge jump that people are sleeping on. And I think he's only going to get better as he starts to become a more established receiver in this league that is getting the targets, getting the attention, and becoming a focal point of an offense. That brings us to number eight. And at the number eight spot, we start getting to the wide receiver duos. Nine and 10, they had a balanced attack across it, three guys, but these teams have two receivers that are so good that it's hard to deny them. So at my number eight spot with the Minnesota Vikings, and it's, I mean, come on, Justin Jefferson, rookie phenom. He is the second highest graded receiver by pro football focus, period. He had almost 1,400 yards or something crazy. Like, this guy is it. And that was his rookie year. He's going to become a better route runner. He's going to become more physical. He's going to become stronger. It is only going up from here. Now, the second receiver for them is Adam Thielen. Adam Thielen is great. He's posted 1,000-yard receiving seasons back to back to back. He dipped down a little bit this year. And I think Adam Thielen is what keeps this receiving core at eight because he's on the other side of 30. He's 31, almost 32, and he's only going to get older. And I think we're starting to see some decline from him going forward. But he's still fantastic. He's still by far one of the better receivers in the league. The biggest thing that keeps them in eight for me is the lack of a real third passing threat that is going to scare any teams, that's going to make them adjust their defensive plans. I don't think they have that. That is why the Minnesota Vikings are at eight for me. Number seven. Number seven is the Seattle Seahawks. Come on. DK Metcalf, six foot three inches, 230 pounds is a monster on the field with 4-3-3 speed. It's hard to cover him, creates a mismatch constantly, 
and it's a massive down the field threat in combination with Tyler Lockett, who can be both in the slot or down the field, can get his production however he needs to, and has been consistent for the last six seasons. Like this man, thousand yard receiver will probably be underrated anyway because all the attention will be on Russell Wilson. Book it. And you've always been able to book it. Now, both of them had a thousand yards last season. There are few wide receiving duos. I want to say three out of the whole league that did it last season. So, you know, they are crazy good. They also both had 10 touchdowns apiece. Again, lack of a third receiving option that puts any fear into a team or really threatens a team's defense or that they have to make adjustments for is really what keeps them at seven for me. Now we move down to six. Number six, I have the Tennessee Titans. Come on. Julio Jones and A.J. Brown are two guys. Julio Jones is arguably the best receiver of this generation. Now, people want to be down on Julio because he struggled a little bit this past season with injuries. But you got to understand, even playing through those injuries, he still had almost 800 yards and 60 catches, man. He is a monster as long as he is on the field. He had six consecutive 1,000-yard seasons before this season in which he dealt with those injuries. A.J. Brown is coming off back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons and has established himself as one of the most versatile receivers in the game, whether it's on the outside going deep, whether it's in a short game in the slot or intermediate routes. He can run the entire route tree. These two guys are a problem. I don't know what anybody's going to be able to do with them. Now, they did lose Janu Smith, which I think is a big blow for them. But I think some of that can be a little placated by the signing of Josh Reynolds from the Rams. It's not like Josh Reynolds is a world breaker like Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. But then again, if you had three world breakers, you'd probably be a little bit higher on this list. However, Josh Reynolds is very familiar with how to eat in the role that he will have on this Titans team, being the third receiver, whether it was behind Cooper Cup and Brandon Cooks or other receivers at the Rams. He had a career year last year, had 52 catches, over 600 yards, which is double almost double his previous season. So I think he's going to keep making strides forward, will really fit in as a third receiver here who is definitely going to consistently be able to eat and get what the defense is going to give him having to deal with Julio Jones and A.J. Brown across from each other. That brings us to number five. And the crazy thing about number five is they're actually... Number two on the like, just I think about the reputation of these teams and where you want to put them. Number five for me is the Kansas City Chiefs, which I think a lot of people want to have significantly higher. But I don't think you should, because I don't think we should overvalue their receiving core because of how 
good Patrick Mahomes is. And I think it's very easy to do that. However, look, Cheetah, Tyreek Hill, and Travis Kells, apparently his last name is not pronounced Kelsey, it's pronounced Kells, are just that good that they do not need a third consistent option to demolish defenses. Now, that's not saying I don't expect Demarcus Robertson or McCole Hardman to establish and come into the role as a consistent third receiver, especially McCole Hardman. It's not that I don't think they can feel the shoes of a Sammy Watkins. In fact, I personally believe that they can. And I expect them to. However, on the strength of what we have seen so far, I put them at five because the mismatches created by Hill and Kelsey alone are devastating. You got to think about this. Tyreek Hill last season had 87 catches and almost 1,300 yards, averaging 14 and a half yards a catch. Insane. Kelsey had 100 catches last season, 105 catches, and that was for over 1,400 yards. These two might be the best dynamic duo on their own in the NFL, but they get outclassed by teams that start adding that third and fourth level receiving option, and that's where things start at at four for me. At four, we start seeing your third guy being Pro Bowl caliber, not necessarily a Pro Bowler this upcoming season, but a Pro Bowl caliber player. Five through eight, very dominating duos, but four is about depth. Four on is all about depth. So the number four team for me, Bills Mafia, the Buffalo Bills. Come on. Stephon Diggs was a monster last season. Seeing what him and Josh Allen could do together made him by far one of the best receivers in the league and probably just production-wise the best receiver in the league last year. 127 catches, over 1,500 yards, and eight touchdowns. That is top in catches and yards for receivers in the NFL. Insane. Cole Beasley, consistently one of the most underrated receivers in football. Consistently one of the best slot receivers in football. Look, he had 107 catches, was just shy of 1,000 yards, and that is huge to me. Now, the third receiver, and I think the third receiver is what takes them from below Kansas City to above Kansas City, is the signing of Emmanuel Sander. This is a no-brainer, a huge boost. He's a receiver that can get it anywhere on the field, and He's also a receiver that had 60 catches and over 700 yards last season in a less than ideal situation for him. I think that these three guys are going to give people a lot, a lot, a lot of problems. And that is going to be where it is. They kind of start to separate from the pack. So that brings me to number three. Sometimes I hate giving this team 
the credit that they truthfully deserve. But the Dallas Cowboys are the third best receiving core in the league. And it's just, it's hard to deny them this position. Amari Cooper, 1,000-yard receiver, five-time pro bowler, five-time 1,000-yard season, over 1,100 receiving yards last season, and 92 catches, five touchdowns. CeeDee Lamb came off of an amazing rookie season with almost 1,000 yards, like less than 70 shy, 74 catches, five touchdowns. It's overpowering. Michael Gallup as well already had a 1,000-yard season before, but now is eating a little bit less just because of how profuse the weapons were and also the fact that Dak Prescott got hurt so early on. But he had almost 60 catches, over 800 yards. This team is ridiculous. They have all the receiving talent in the world. And the next two, and number two, look, number two is where I honestly believe I am going to surprise a lot of people that I put this team here. I expect a lot of pushback. Maybe even some flaming in the comment section on this one. But number two for me is the Carolina Panthers. It's controversial. I know. But hear me out. If we're going to start counting tight ends a lot, Travis Kelsey to get Kansas City to number five on this list, then we have to count Christian McCaffrey, even though he's a running back, because he is a play maker christian mccaffrey has already had a thousand yards receiving in a season and that was just two seasons ago and he was injured last season and that's the reason why he couldn't replicate that in that season he had 116 catches that is insane a running back with 116 catches and a thousand yard receiving that is a top receiver level talent in this league. That is a one. That is an apex talent. So then what else do we have? We get to the second option. We got to start talking about Robbie Anderson, who has been a dog. Robbie Anderson was good on the New York Jets. That's how good of a receiver Robbie Anderson was. The dysfunctional Adam Gase Jets Robbie Anderson was good on. He had over a thousand yards last season, 95 caches. That in the addition to DJ Moore breaking out with 66 catches and over 1,200 yards. One of the best deep threats in the league, period. That is a three-headed monster, all Pro Bowl, all, all NFL. Fell talent. They are number two, just objectively speaking, when you think of how good these three players are. I know they lost Curtis Samuel, and I know that makes people want to think they're going to take a step back. But if you really think about it, if C Mac is back and C Mac is healthy, they just don't have the targets for Curtis Samuel anymore. This team is fantastic. Sam Darnold has a squad, and that leads us to number one. The number one shouldn't change. Everybody should know this. It's 
the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And they're just the triple OG of depth at this position. Look, Antonio Brown is arguably their third option, depending on where you want to have Gronk at, right? His last season playing 14 or more games, he had 1,300 yards. He played eight games last season and had almost 500 yards. So you got to think about it. A full season under his belt in the offense, having plays drawn up for him with this rapport with Tom Brady. He was honestly on pace for a thousand yard season last year. I expect him to get back to it. Mike Evans is ridiculous. The best red zone threat in the NFL at the wide receiver position. Had 13 touchdowns last year. Has been in the league for seven years. Has had seven 1,000-yard seasons. The man does not miss. The man is fantastic. That is a crazy good number one option. Number two option, Chris Godman. Had a 1,300-yard season two seasons ago. Dipped just shy of 900 yards last season. But he only played 12 games. Means he missed four games. Definitely on pace for another 1,000-yard season by him. That is crazy depth. Don't even talk about Gronkowski. Had 45 catches over 600 yards last season. O.J. Howard coming back. Being another tight end in that system. Giovanni Bernard, underrated running back that can definitely catch. Has 40 catch years in multiple years. There was just too much depth from top to bottom of amazing Pro Bowl level receiving talent on this Tampa Bay Buccaneers roster for them to be anything other than one. It is Tampa Bay and everybody else leagues under them when it comes to the best receiving cores in the NFL. Gallus Tony Playboy. All right. Welcome to the final segment of the show, the heart of the show, Ballers Bouquets. Too often in the media, people only want to focus on the negative and salacious things athletes do and never want to give them their credit where credit is due. Here, we like to make a change. And this week is particularly important to me because the recipient of this Ballers Bouquet actually got a lot of media coverage and attention for this event, except everyone ignored aggressively all the good that he did and was doing for the kids and from families in his community in South Florida and instead chastised him and belittled him. This story is the very thesis of why we do this segment every week. So this week's Ballers Bouquet goes to Lamar Jackson for his third annual fun day sponsored by his Forever Dreamers Foundation. All right, Fun Day is a two-day annual event that took place this year in Coral Springs, Florida. Lamar hosts local children and their families and provides what is essentially a free theme park experience featuring their favorite player. 
Now, over the years, they've had climbing walls, water slides, obstacle courses, seven-on-seven flag football games, as well as a food truck that feeds over 500 kids a day for free at the event. This isn't some quick photo op, even though he's taking countless pictures with a ton of fans. Lamar is actually interacting with the kids, talking to them, playing games with them, whether it's catch, football. Look, they get to meet someone from the same place as them that walked the same streets, could have even went to the same schools as them, that has made it, has achieved the dream and become extremely successful. And that is something that makes these kids days and brings them a lot of joy. In addition to all of the other fun stuff that he provides to them at no cost. But instead of celebrating that and recognizing the good that he's doing, all anyone wanted to talk about was how he's taking these unnecessary risks by playing football with these kids and the implication that it has on his contract. Look, I get it. He's playing football on asphalt. But look, you can get hurt doing literally anything. Literally anything. But what he is doing is bringing genuine joy and good into the world and doing something for the kids. But of course, all anyone wanted to do was paint this in a negative light, painted as irresponsible, turning something so pure and good into another salacious activity. In fact, almost all of the media coverage everywhere that I looked was only focused on the negative and never focused on any of the positive of what he was actually doing. However, we already know Lamar is not going to let the hate stop him. He's already tweeted that he's going to run it back again next year and bring even more fun. So this is definitely a cause and a mission that I could get behind. And if you can get behind it too, you can donate to Lamar Jackson's Forever Dreamers Foundation really easily at Cash App. Their Cash App is the dollar sign Forever Dreamers. And that was this week's Ballers Bouquet. All right, that is it for episode 43 of the Fly Route Podcast. As always, I want to thank everybody who's rocking with us, whether you're listening on YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify, Podchaser, and now Audia. Y'all mean the world. I'd love to hear your feedback, and I cannot wait to bring you all more news next Friday. The, 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 the Fly Route Pod. The Fly Route Pod. The Fly Route Pod. The Fly Route Pod. The Fly Route Pod.